Chapter 4, Part 2 of Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria James. Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 4, Part 2 Conditions of Life. A community of toilers with an undeveloped continent before them and destitute of the refinements and elegancies of life. Such was the picture presented by the Republic fifty years ago. Contrasted with that of today, we might almost conclude that we were upon another planet and subject to different primary conditions. If the roads throughout the country are yet poor compared with those of Europe, the need of good roads has been rendered less imperative by the omnipresent railroad. It is the superiority of the iron highway in America which has diverted attention from the country roads. Macaulay's test of the civilization of a people by the condition of their roads must be interpreted, in this age of steam, to include railroads. Communication between places is now cheaper and more comfortable than in any other country. Upon the principal railway lines, the cars, luxurious drawing-rooms by day and sleeping chambers by night, are ventilated by air, warmed and filtered in winter, and cooled in summer. Passenger steamers upon the lakes and rivers are of gigantic size and models of elegance. The variety and quality of the food of the people of America excels that found elsewhere, and is a constant surprise to Europeans visiting the States. The dress of the people is now of the richest character, far beyond that of any other people compared class for class. The comforts of the average American home compare favorably with those of other lands, while the residences of the wealthy classes are not equaled anywhere. The first-class American residence of today, in all its appointments, excites the envy of the foreigner. One touch of the electric button calls a messenger, two touches bring a telegraph boy, three summon a policeman, four give the alarm of fire. Telephones are used to an extent hardly dreamed of in Europe, the stables, gardeners' houses, and other outbuildings being connected with the mansion, and the houses of friends are joined by the talking wire almost as often as houses of business. Speaking tubes connect the drawing-room with the kitchen, and the dinner is brought up, piping hot, by an elevator. Hot air and steam pipes are carried all over the house, and by the turning of a tap, the temperature of any room is regulated to suit the convenience of the occupant. The electric light is coming into use throughout the country as an additional home comfort. Indeed, there is no palace or great mansion in Europe with half the conveniences and scientific appliances which characterize the best American mansions. New York Central Park is no unworthy rival of Hyde Park and the Bois de Boulogne in its display of fine equipages, and in winter the hundreds of graceful sleighs dashing along the drives form a picture prettier than anything London can boast. The opera houses, theaters, and public halls of the country excel in magnificence those of other lands, if we accept the later constructions in Paris and Vienna, with which the New York and Philadelphia opera houses rank. The commercial exchanges and the imposing structures of the life insurance companies, newspaper buildings, hotels, and many edifices built by wealthy firms, not only in New York, but in the cities of the West, never fail to excite the Europeans' surprise. The postal system is equal in every respect to that of Europe. Mails are taken up by express trains, sorted on board, and dropped at all important points without stopping. Letters are delivered several times a day in every considerable town. The uniform rates of postage for all distances, often exceeding 3,000 miles, is only two cents, one penny, per ounce. In short, the conditions of life in American cities may be said to have approximated those of Britain during the 50 years of which we are speaking. Year by year, as the population advanced, 
the general standard of comfort in the smaller western cities rises to that of the east herbert spencer was astonished beyond measure at what he saw in american cities such books as i had looked into said he had given me no adequate idea of the immense developments of material civilization which i have everywhere found the extent wealth and magnificence of your cities and especially the splendor of new york have altogether astonished me though i have not visited the wonder of the west chicago yet some of your minor modern places such as cleveland have sufficiently amazed me by the marvelous results of one generation's activity occasionally when i have been in places of some ten thousand inhabitants where the telephone is in general use i have felt somewhat ashamed of our own unenterprising towns many of which of fifty thousand inhabitants and more make no use of it there is little difference between the municipal institutions of the new and the old lands but no contrast can be greater than that between their country districts the unfortunate people of monarchies have reason to envy the american in many respects but in none more keenly than for the perfection of his local township and county organizations if my american readers were generally informed of the chaos prevailing throughout the country districts of england they would be at a loss to understand how a people who speak the english tongue could have tolerated it so long the church has a certain share in local matters especially as regards education and the clergymen vicars rectors and curates are found upon the select boards which manage all local affairs then the lords of the manors the owners of lands have also a share the squire and the parson are really the powers which attend to everything and manage all to their own liking the palace of my lord duke is assessed to pay taxes less in amount than the moderate-sized villa of the new man who is not in the ruling coterie every little country district has its ring for in place of one ring in the republic there are twenty in the monarchy the offices are naturally distributed to the favorites of the landlords and the parsons the people of the district have no voice whatever in the matter since they are excluded from voting for county officials only those who are possessed of a certain amount of property or who reside in large houses and pay large rents and who are consequently of the ruling classes are permitted to vote the majority of the people therefore have no interest in the community as a community there is no soil for the growth of local patriotism in the british towns however a pleasing contrast to this sad picture is presented in these manhood suffrage prevails and in many if not all cases women possessed of property are also entitled to vote the result is a degree of attention to municipal affairs upon the part of the best citizens of the towns which is rarely found even in america beyond the borders of the old settled states if at all the proceedings of the town council including the speeches of every member are regularly published at length in the local newspapers sometimes as much as four columns are occupied by the report of this local parliament and no reading is so much enjoyed or excites a deeper interest in the community it is true one outside the boundaries smiles to read of really able men the local manufacturers and merchants of the place disputing upon the correctness of a charge of five pounds six and eightpence for repairing the town house clock or an increase of ten pounds in the salary of the town clerk 
but the imperial parliament itself is not seldom engaged upon trifling matters, and it is this attention to details which ensures a proper disposition of the public funds and an excellent government of the municipality. The magistrates and town councillors are held in the highest honour, and one hears in Britain of Provost Matthews or Provost Donald's premiership and local improvements being characterised as during this or that administration. The resident of the town hears the names of prominent public men, but these are mere abstractions to him and furnish no material basis for admiration. But when the provost passes by, he sees in him concentrated glory, the pride of power, the real presence, as it were. From the town councils, the nation is drawing some of its foremost leaders. Mr. Chamberlain and Alderman Kenrick began their education in that of Birmingham, Mr. Storey his in that of Sunderland, and the late George Harrison his in Edinburgh. My experience of the town community of Britain gives me the highest possible estimate of the power of the masses to produce beneficial changes through the selection of men best qualified for the work. The time has not yet arrived for as complete and effective municipal institutions throughout the Republic as those of Britain, but we see in the more settled parts that we are arriving at similar results. While, therefore, the municipalities of the old land are not excelled by any in the new, and are upon the average better, the country districts of Britain have institutions which are a disgrace to the people. The stolid ignorance of the masses, their seeming contentedness with a life befitting the swineherds of early Saxon times, their dependence upon what they call their betters, and the sycophantic vices which aristocratic rule ever produces in the poor are positively sickening to the American, who naturally contrasts the situation with that at home, and especially contrasts the men and women produced by the two systems. You see, then, says the narrow, uninformed Tory squire as he shows his American visitor the condition of the masses around him, you see how utterly unfit these people are for what you call self-government and the equality of the citizen. Bless you! If we didn't look after them, they couldn't live. He does not often hear the proper reply, but I flatter myself that he does sometimes. Give these people all the rights and privileges you possess in this district, and before you die, unless you drop off suddenly, the result will surprise you. Never can they be transformed from practical serfdom except by imposing upon them the duties of citizens and then educating them to the proper performance of those duties. You are just like the foolish mother who would not permit her boy to go near the water till he had learned to swim. Throw him in. Be at his side to see that he does not quite drown, but be careful not to assist too much. Don't bolster him up until he is exhausted and ready to sink. This same Tory squire will descant at dinner upon the mission his country holds for the improvement of inferior races throughout the world, wholly oblivious to the fact that it would be difficult to find among any subject race in any part of the world a more ignorant, debased, and poverty-stricken community than that which the autocratic system of his class has produced within a few miles of his own gate. No man can see so clearly the mote in his brother's eye and be so blind to the beam in his own as the country magnet of England. He feels, at least he professes to feel, for every people but his own. 
A short description of the Republican country organizations will probably be interesting to the British people, and even to the American, who is too apt to enjoy his blessings without paying much attention to their sources. The subdivision of states into counties and of counties into townships for purposes of local government have not been made upon a uniform plan. The earlier states present many points of difference in these divisions, but the newer states of the West and Northwest, which combine much the greater area of the country, may be said to follow the same general mode. It is that alone which I think worthwhile to describe, since it is the recent and distinctively American practice. Iowa is one of the most creditable communities in the Union, and I shall give a glimpse into her local governments. The genesis of these home parliaments is very simple. First comes a settler, axe in hand, who erects a log cabin, clears the ground, and plants whatever seeds he may be blessed with. Then comes another and another who do the same upon adjoining land, until a dozen or more families are near together. Two wants are now felt. Roads or paths between these houses, and from the hamlet to the nearest market town or railway station, and a school for the children. There is no central authority to provide these, and finally the hardy settlers resolve to have a meeting and talk matters over. They vote to tax themselves and construct them. Somebody must be designated to assess the tax, somebody to collect it, someone to supervise the work, and someone to keep the accounts, etc. Here are the beginnings of the tax assessor, collector, county supervisor, and town clerk, and after a while to these are added the constable and the justice of the peace. Many a township record begins like that of Burlington in Calhoun County, Michigan, organized in 1837 and held its first township meeting April 3rd of that year, electing Justice Goodwin, supervisor, O.C. Freeman, town clerk, Justice Goodwin, Gibsia Sanders, and Moses S. Gleason, justices of the peace, Leon Hotailing, constable and collector, established six road districts, voted $100 to build a bridge, across the St. Joseph River, and $50 for bridging Nottawa Creek, voted $50 for common schools, and $5 bounty for wolf scalps. Ah, that $50 for common schools. That was the vote of votes, gentlemen. Just see, wherever we peer into these first tiny springs of the national life, how this true panacea for all the ills of the body politic bubbles forth. Education, education, education. Through all the history of the land runs this care for the golden thread of knowledge upon which to string the blessings and achievements of an educated, triumphant democracy. And will you note also that no mention is made of the birth or rank of these village Hamdens? It may safely be inferred that neither was thought of in that democratic meeting. The fittest and best man was what the occasion demanded, and no doubt wise choice was made upon the only sensible basis. The tools to those who can best use them. The township is, as a rule, six miles square, as all the territories are divided into such areas by the government surveyors. As population increases, 12 to 15 townships band together and form the greater political division, the county, and the larger home rule circle. The county officials are usually elected for terms of two years, although in many states annual elections are held. 
suffrage is invariably universal and electoral districts equal. All officials are paid, but their salaries are extremely moderate. The county town is selected, of course, in democratic fashion by a fair vote. By vote of the people are elected at short intervals not only all county political officials, including the sheriffs and other magistrates having authority, and the county superintendent of education, the road supervisors and guardians of the poor, but the judges themselves, and why not? Who are so deeply interested in the able and pure administration of justice as the masses of the people, the poorer classes of the people, who may be trusted to elect the men least likely to lean unduly to the side of the rich, the powerful, and the strong? If judges must have leanings, and being but human, they must be influenced, even unconsciously, by their environments. By all means, let their failings lean to virtue's side, which is always, with very rare exceptions, the side of the poor and the weak. Many counties at last form the third and largest circle of home rule, the state, which in turn with other states constitute the federal system of the republic. These are little centers within centers of home rule, and the experience gained of their healthfulness in matters political is such as to bring about the general rule that the central authority shall do nothing which the state can do for itself, the state nothing which the county can do for itself, and the county nothing for the township which it can do for itself. As sure as the sun shines, in proportion as government recedes from the people immediately interested, it becomes liable to abuse. Whatever authority can be conveniently exercised in primary assemblies should, therefore, be placed there, for there it is certain to produce satisfactory results. Jefferson was indeed a far-seeing statesman, and he says, These wards, called townships in New England, are the vital principle of their governments, and have proved themselves the wisest inventions ever devised by the wit of man for the perfect exercise of self-government and for its preservation. The American believes in home rule down to the smallest divisions and has shown an admirable dislike of centralization. He will not call upon any authority to help him as long as he can help himself. Divide society into as many and as small divisions as you please, the smallest still remains a complete epitome, a microcosm of the whole. The council of a city is a perfect miniature of the imperial assembly. The observer recognizes its pocket editions of Cleveland, Gladstone, Blaine, and Salisbury. In the life of the city, there stand the local Beecher and the local Spurgeon, the Spencer, Fisk, Huxley, Marsh, the doctors Flint, Dennis, Mackenzie, the Black, and the Howells. Yes, it even has its Arnold, Holmes, Lowell, Browning, and Whitman, all in miniature, no doubt, as befits the small stage upon which these tiny actors perform. Men and women divide into a few classes, and in every village these classes exist, and the smaller the body, the more clearly defined the line between them in society. Oh yes, there is even society in these villages, and leaders of fashion too. All the absurd things as well as the good things are present, not one missing, for as each grain composing the block of marble has within itself all that makes marble marble, so each gathering of men and women, no matter how small, has all that makes empires empires. Statesmen have but to allow free play to these forces to produce harmonious action. The American always does this in town and country. The Briton has pursued a different course, except recently in the towns, 
and the effect of exclusion from the management of their local affairs upon the character of the masses throughout the country districts has been deplorable. They are not yet men. They are in spirit only serfs. But as the right to vote for members of parliament was granted them last year, and they have just voted en masse against the ruling class, the tide has begun to turn at last, and there must soon arise among them an irresistible movement for home rule within their own small divisions. The truest account I have found of the condition of the masses of the American people who live in the villages and small towns, as distinguished from the large cities and from the country, is that concerning New England in Professor Fisk's excellent little book, American Political Ideas. I give my readers this description and certify of my own knowledge to its entire truthfulness. As a rule, the head of each family owns the house in which he lives, and the ground on which it is built. The relation of landlord and tenant, though not unknown, is not commonly met with. No sort of social distinction or political privilege is associated with the ownership of land, and the legal difference between real and personal property, especially as regards ease of transfer, have been reduced to the smallest minimum that practical convenience will allow. Each householder, therefore, through an absolute proprietor, cannot be called a miniature lord of the manor, because there exists no permanent dependent class such as is implied in the use of such a phrase. Each larger proprietor attends in person to the cultivation of his own land, assisted perhaps by his own sons or by neighbors working for hire in the leisure left over from the care of their own smaller estates. So, in the interior of the house, there is usually no domestic service that is not performed by the mother of the family and the daughters. Yet, in spite of this universality of manual labor, the people are as far as possible from presenting the appearance of peasants. Poor or shabbily dressed people are rarely seen, and there is no one in the village whom it would be proper to address in a patronizing tone, or who would not consider it a gross insult to be offered a shilling. As with poverty, so with dram-drinking and with crime, all alike are conspicuous by their absence. In a village of one thousand inhabitants there will be a poorhouse, where five or six decrepit old people are supported at the common charge, and there will be one tavern, where it is not easy to find anything stronger to drink than light beer or cider. The danger from thieves is so slight that it is not always thought necessary to fasten the outer doors of the house at night. The universality of literary culture is as remarkable as the freedom with which all persons engage in manual labor. The village of a thousand inhabitants will be very likely to have a public circulating library, in which you may find Professor Huxley's Lay Sermons or Sir Henry Maine's Ancient Law. It will surely have a high school and half a dozen other schools for small children. A person unable to read and write is as great a rarity as an albino or a person with six fingers. The farmer who threshes his own corn and cuts his own firewood has very likely a piano in his family sitting room, with the Atlantic Monthly on the table and Milton and Tennyson, Gibbon and Macaulay on his shelves, while his daughter, who has baked bread in the morning, is, perhaps, ready to paint on china in the afternoon. In former times, theological questions largely occupied the attention of the people, and there is probably no part of the world where the Bible has been more attentively read, or where the mysteries of Christian doctrine have, to so great an extent, 
been made the subject of earnest discussion in every household. Hence, we find in the New England of today a deep religious sense combined with singular flexibility of mind and freedom of thought. Such is the democracy, such its conditions of life. In the presence of such a picture, can it be maintained that the rule of the people is subversive of government and religion? Where have monarchical institutions developed a community so delightful in itself, so intelligent, so free from crime or pauperism, a community in which the greatest good of the greatest number is so fully attained, and one so well calculated to foster the growth of self-respecting men, which is the end civilization seeks? For ere man made us citizens, God made us men." The Republican is necessarily self-respecting for the laws of his country, in full accord with the laws of God. Begin by making him a man indeed, the equal of other men, and believe me, my readers, the man who most respects himself will be found the man who most respects the rights and feelings of others. The rural democracy of America could be as soon induced to sanction the confiscation of the property of their richer neighbors or to vote for any violent or discreditable measure, as it could be led to surrender the president for a king. Free institutions develop all the best and noblest characteristics, and these always lead in the direction of the golden rule. These honest, pure, contented, industrious, patriotic people really do consider what they would have others do to them. They ask themselves what is fair, nor is there, in Britain, so conservative a body of men. But then, it is the equality of the citizen, just and equal laws, republicanism, they are resolved to conserve. To conserve these, they are at all times ready to fight, and if need be, to die. For, to men who have once tasted the elixir of political equality, life under unequal conditions could possess no charm. To every man is committed in some degree, as a sacred trust, the manhood of man. This he may not himself infringe, or permit to be infringed by others. Hereditary dignities, political inequalities, do infringe the right of man, and hence are not to be tolerated. The true democrat must live the peer of his fellows, or die struggling to become so. It only remains, for those still held in the toils of feudalism in the parent land, to vindicate their right to rise to the full stature of equal citizenship, since, by the greater part of the English-speaking race, this position has been already acquired through the triumphant democracy. End of chapter 4, Conditions of Life